Tuesdays, we get local. Starting at 730, it's our local news podcast, Down Ballot. And then we swing over to local love starting at 9 p.m. Tune in early to see what's going on during the day, then stay locked in to find out what's happening in local music and whose bands are hitting the venues for the week. It's a whole night of news and music right in San Jose's backyard, starting at 7.30 p.m. Pacific on twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Check out our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com. So they do all kinds of crazy things, make uh, pictures of me, make fun of me on their radio show and everything. They're ascended masters. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. Got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need I've got a pile of broken mirrors And I'm walking under ladders And I'm spilling tons of salt But to me that doesn't matter Cause my skin and my gender and my orientation Are the best things to have if you live in this nation I recommend it highly the ground. I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. Shit's gonna work out for me. Cause I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. All right, everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Pacific, unless we don't. On those occasions, it's because it was 100 degrees here, and I think that will no longer be a thing. So, um, yeah, you can support this project at Echoplex Media or at patreon.com slash Echoplex or head on over to eplex.store, and you can buy some shirts. We have a really a couple really good ones. We got that limited edition HK pink ID t-shirt. We're going to be getting rid of Great that shirt. at the end of this month. Um, I'm really sad I didn't get it today. It's coming tomorrow. I just checked the delivery. Well, good. You'll have to let me know how the printing on it is. <clears throat> yeah. Well, fuck yeah. So, I'm producer Dave, and you can find me on Grinder. <laughs> and I'm HK Perrin. You can find me on Twitter at HK Perrin, and you can find me right here on Twitch on my own channel called Silfweed, which is also my name in the chat, where I like to play games. So, if you like watching people play games, especially open source games, which we do every Saturday, uh, Check out my channel. That's Sylphweed. Sylph like the mythical creature and weed like the stuff you smoke. Like the stuff I smoke. You barely smoke it, but actually I barely smoke weed too. My tablet's acting weird. Whatever, I'll, fi- I'll fix it during the break. <laughs> so last week we did Gore Vidal versus William F. Buckley at the Democratic National Committee in um, 
1968. So this week we're going to do them at the Republican National Committee in 1968. And without any further ado, here's a blast from the past. These conventions, two of America's most eloquent and most decided commentators have joined us this year. They are Gore Vidal, a former Democratic candidate for Congress, but better known as an author of, among many other things, a play about a political convention, and William F. Buckley, Jr., a former conservative candidate for the mayor of New York, but better known as and a squished head man. commentator and editor of the <laughs> National Review. Mr. Buckley, who of the potential candidates do you think is, if I may steal a title from Mr. Vidal, the best man? Oh, I'm not prepared to say. I think that um, uh, several... I think it looks better this way. ...qualified to be a good president. Oh, his head? ...is who do I like most. <laughs> To which my answer is that as a conservative, I am very much uh, uh, fetched by the programs <laughs> of uh, Mr. Reagan and also of Mr. Nixon. I think that Mr. Nixon uh, has convinced the majority of the delegates that he is the best man in the light of his uh, experience, given also the fact that his experience coincides with his commitment to a series of policies which they endorse. Can Mr. Vidal assess those candidates for us? What do you think of them? Well, I would come, I think, to a very different uh, point of view. Uh, to me, none of them is really the best man, with the possible exception of Nelson Rockefeller. I cannot possibly imagine Richard Nixon as the president of the United States. Uh, I think he is uh, Oops. essentially the hollow man that we always discussed. I think we're living in revolutionary times in which new programs are needed. And that you're going to need somebody who can really put the young people in the country, the Negroes, the ghettos, the poor, I mean, or angry. It was a bad choice. This is a terrible time, and here you have a man. Not the best. Although no, no longer the worst. Against public housing, <laughs> against slum clearance, against rent control, against farm housing, against extending the minimum wage. He was against, uh, or rather dubious about the 1954 Supreme Court decision bill. He said, I'm opposed to pensions in any form as it makes loafing more attractive than working. And now today he offers us a program for the ghettos, which he's made much of. And what is it? Well, he's going to give tax cuts to private businesses that go into the ghetto and to help uh, the Negroes. <clears throat> now, in actual fact... Like the, the vernacular from back then, even from like a liberal, is pretty interesting. Like using words like ghetto and Negro and stuff. It's not... So they'll get their tax yeah. cut and we'll have nothing in the ghetto, probably, but... A, the rising expectation of what is now revolution. So I would say that, that as far as Mr. Nixon goes, I think he's an impossible choice domestically. Uh, may I comment, uh, uh, Ms. Smith? Please do. Yeah. It seems to me that the um, the earlier... I like the Funhouse mirror vision that this is... <laughs> that this, this video is. It's just, an, it's just old tape, though. He said that he found himself wondering whether a party that was devoted to the concept of human greed could have a hope to get a majority of the American people to vote for it. Now, uh, the, the author of Myra Breckenridge is well acquainted with the imperatives of human greed. <laughs> well, I would like to say, Bill, if I may say, Bill, but what dominates him before you go any further, I would like to say that if there were a contest for Mr. Myra Breckenridge, you would unquestionably win it. I based her entire style polemically upon you. Passionate and irrelevant. That's too... Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh. oh, so, like, people kind of harken back for this time and acting like it was, like, super civil, but he just, like, fucking just fucking threw a pretty nasty ad hom at that guy. Yeah. Um, I think it was... Uh, 
it was not civil, but like the way people insulted each other back then uh, is different than the way people insult each other now. So I think a lot of people just like the difference rather than actually liking like any any real tangible thing. Now, my, my point is that um, uh, the number of people... Who Could you imagine if someone said that to Eric Weinstein during one of the fucking things that he's doing, though? He would melt the fuck down. <laughs> he would be like... Oops. What the hell? Oh, hold on. The focus on ridicule. He'd be very upset. <laughs> I agree that there are certain ways of doing things which are different from other ways of doing things. For uh, Mr. Vidal to give us the pleasure of his infrequent company by coming back from Europe where he lives in order to uh, disdain the American democratic process and uh, to uh, contemn a, a particular party as engaged in the pursuit of human greed requires us to understand his rather eccentric definitions. Is it greedy really for people to suggest that what matters to poor people is that they have houses rather than who should uh, build them? It was Senator Bobby Kennedy, uh, not uh, Mr. Nixon, who first suggested uh, a tax rebate for businesses engaged in this kind of pursuit. Is it really greedy to want to preserve our freedom? Have the Republicans been greedy by being prepared to support uh, a war which kills American youth and uh, uses up 30, 40 billion dollars a year? They may have been wrong, but greedy would strike me as uh, very wrong-headed. But a lot of them probably still back then had like financial ties to like the war machine, just like they do now. So some of them might have yeah. been in favor of the war for personal financial gain, among other things. I mean, <clears throat> that's the thing is like, what do you like? Oh, you know, you said there you're the party agreed. And then he brought up like something about the war. And he's like, well, you can also be warmonger. You know, they could also be warmongers and greedy. It's not like, oh, because <laughs> actually they're just warmongers, dude. It's like, well, no, they're both. <laughs> in, in a lot of senses, one is both the same. Or is a racket. ...which is based upon the business interests. It represents only 27% of the people of the United States. Somebody once pointed out Republicans are not a party, they're a class. And it's a class of, by and large, small businessmen with uh, very strong views about not weakening the moral fiber of the poor, who now number 30 million people. And by and large, I quoted for you Mr. Nixon's record in the Senate, which was not terribly helpful as far as programs for the poor goes. And they do believe, however, Republicans in spreading the money around amongst themselves. And they get, through big business, they get uh, far more subsidies than the poor do. And as a matter of fact, we have a situation in the United States where... It's funny how everything he's saying, for the rich. it was true then and it's true now. Right, it's probably just accelerated now. Yeah, even worse now. Possibly. Yeah. ...in free enterprise for the poor. The rich are subsidized, and the poor, alas, I think our military budget is something like $75 billion. And I agree entirely about the horrors of the war with Mr. Buckley. We're bound to agree on something. And uh, only $2 billion is spent for poverty programs, which all the Republicans, to a man in House and Senate, uh, have been opposed to. The thing uh, about the poverty program, and of course the thing about the democratic system, uh, is that there ought to be a party free to discuss the uh, to discuss that which is wrong in a particular concept and it is widely acknowledged by a lot of people many of them democrats that the poverty program hasn't worked it's certainly acknowledged by poor people who are victims of uh, the rather comfortable uh, rhetoric of mr vidal 
the uh, principal contributions that have been made to the elimination of poverty in America have been made by millions upon millions upon millions of people who have not sought political favor, who work hard enough to create uh, a surplus, uh, which surplus is distributed in the way the surplus has been distributed during the past four or five generations in this country, resulting in the fact that we have the luxury of being able to focus on those who are poor in our midst as though we can do something about it, which is something that no other country less occupied with human greed mm. has the luxury. The nice thing about the Republican Party is that every four years... Uh, he, he mentioned the poor amongst the themselves, referring to the essentially wealth generation of the previous four or five generations. At that time, wasn't he talking about like going all the way back to slavery? Yes, I believe so. If it's four or five generations... I'm not even sure we're five generations. I don't know. It depends on how you define a generation and how many years it is. Yeah, like, certainly people that were alive here, like, their parents lived through slavery. Uh, so, like, I would say, you know, there is a big discrepancy between what he said was generating the wealth and what was actually generating the wealth. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, four generations, four or five generations back from them is probably well into, like it might be four or five generations back from 68 might be like 1800. Yeah. Freeloaders, they don't want to work. And I have many quotes here from Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon on the subject and making fun of the minority groups with lovely little remarks like what was one of the headings in the National Review when Adam Clayton Powell got nabbed. The headline was, The Jig is Up. Well, this sort of kind of pleasantry that you get in the Republican Party, I should say in the right wing all over the United States, and then every four years you get this sort of crocodile tears for the poor people because they need their vote. Well, I don't think that they're going to vote for any of your candidates unless by some terrible accident the democrats get split hopelessly at chicago which could well happen and eugene mccarthy's people not vote in which case i think uh, that richard nixon might very well become the next president and i shall make my occasional trips to europe longer yes uh, i think uh, a lot of people hope you uh, will uh, <laughs> yes phil <laughs> as a matter of fact mr arthur schlesinger jr who's a member of your party not mine reminds you of your promise to uh, uh, renounce your American citizenship unless you get a satisfactory uh, party in November. But that isn't quite what I said, Bill. However, yeah. now, Bill, that's not quite what okay. I said. I said it would be the morally correct thing to yes, do I'm if sure. the war I'm did not sure. end. But I can behave as immorally as the Republicans. I can believe that. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the uh, you, you make the mistake. Like I could behave immorally. A mistake of uh, distorting my remarks, my presence. My remarks are not interesting to. Uh, a national audience, but when we were discussed, I the think that's true. That's true, Bill. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I'll try to interest them. Uh, yes. But when we discussed the jiggers up with Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the point precisely of that editorial was that Mr. Powell's invocation of the fact that he was a Negro, in order to immunize him from anything, to immunize him from committing libel, to immunize him from stealing the money that his wife didn't earn. Uh, to immunize him from a complete contempt of the proscribed procedure of the House of Representatives was not a satisfactory uh, argument that was represented. Now, it is uh, quite true that, uh, that uh, uh, Reagan is capable of talking about freeloaders, so am I, because yes. there are freeloaders. It is one thing to say that, uh, uh, it is one thing to say that a society ought to concern itself with the part of its poor. I think the Republican Party is saying that. 
but it is quite wrong for uh, any party to fall into such demagogic uh, length as to suggest that everybody who is poor is poor uh, simply because he cannot find work. This well, that is often, however, a, a Republican line. And uh, can I can I bring up a, a little thing based on what he's saying here? Sure. A lot of people talk about freeloaders as if like having more freeloaders means you have a bad society. Uh, but I would say that probably the opposite is true. The more, the more your society allows for freeloading, like in the sense of like, you don't have to go, you don't have to work to be able to live. The better your society is because a lot of people, if you give them time to just do whatever they want, like they don't have to work to survive, they're going to go back to school and get a good education, like a better education. And then they're going to develop something new. Or a lot of people, if you give them time, will just start working on something that they like and could end up turning that into a business. So I feel like the... It's mostly on the political right, but also on the political left in America. There's a, a demonization of uh, people not having to work to survive. And I think that's fucked up. People shouldn't have to work all the time to survive. Maybe if, if they have to work at all to survive, it should be a reasonable amount of work. And I mean, not for nothing, they only demonize you if you're not working, if you, like, say, aren't from... Uh, some kind of family dynasty where you're not working because your family has so much goddamn money that you're just always on vacation. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> if you're freeloading, but you're rich, you're a okay. Right. Private freeloading is fine. Public freeloading free freeloading is bad. And yeah, you're right. The other, you know, other things that people would pursue, they'd pursue art. They'd pursue, pursue music, maybe personal fitness, People would pursue all kinds of things that take up your time. They just aren't always necessarily going to uh, generate monetary gain, but that doesn't mean those aren't worthwhile things for people to do. And I think it would make capitalism better too, because a someone who wants to buy the labor of someone else would have to pay them enough that it would be worth this other person to give up their free time to to give them their labor, you know? It would make getting a job, uh, you'd have to be incentivized a lot more to get a job, so these businesses would would have to treat their employees very well. Office of Economic Opportunity, he rejected something very proudly, something like 12 programs. Now these were programs not only to help the poor, but to help them find jobs. Meanwhile, with several denunciations, which we would like, I'll quote you, on freeloaders, on welfare, and how it encourages immorality and divorce. I assume he was on unemployment insurance when he divorced Jane Wyman. And I suppose it is a wicked thing that people don't have money, but an actual fact in California, those who are on those roles... Who it's a well-known fact that wealthy people never get divorced, right? So about 95% might have been helped <laughs> by the Office of Economic Opportunity. And he rejected, very proudly, he has the number one record of any government in the United States for that. Though you did mention at the time in, uh, in one of your columns that Pat Brown also rejected several of their programs. Mm -hmm. You were wrong. Yeah. Indeed, uh, Pat Brown never rejected one. 
Well, your saying that I was wrong doesn't necessarily make it so, but Mr. Vidal's problem uh, is, I suppose, best uh, exemplified uh, by the fact that uh, the American people in whose behalf he speaks with occasional uh, eloquence seem to be able to get along very well without him. It was uh, Mr. Reagan who, notwithstanding the fact uh, that, uh, like the Republican Party, uh, he ran on a platform advocating human greed, uh, won the Democratic uh, 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 contest by a million votes, all of them are Democratic votes, since it was required to have a million votes. It well, I think, I think the figures. Now, this being the case, it seems to me that they either are transcending uh, uh, your analysis or else it is they're so, so dumb. But Bill, the Bill, they, 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 they don't benefit from uh, your uh, If I may say so, the electoral process often makes great errors. I think you would agree, according to you, it's made nothing but errors since 1932, with a sort of eight-year interregnum of a man that you didn't much admire. In fact, sure. you criticized Richard Nixon for his unctuous uh, uh, love and attention of the great general. Mm -hmm. I think unctuous was a rather good word. Yes, but I can account for those errors. Uh, uh, I can account for those errors other than by, by using these uh, neurotic terms. Uh, that you are so uh, fetched by. Uh, I say the Republican Party is here to do a responsible job, to suggest that they are here simply as an instrument for the exploitation of the people, uh, is to engage in a diseased kind of analysis, uh, which increasingly Mr. Vidal applies to his liking. But fortunately, it's not a national concern. Perhaps the Republican Party should have a platform on how to deal with Vidal. If absolutely necessary, I will write it for them. But meanwhile... But meanwhile, I, I wonder what they're going to do with Reagan. I'd be very, very nervous. You have written lately of your intimacy with Reagan and with Nixon and that you've discussed the Vietnam War with them and that you were satisfied with their positions. Since you were in favor of the invasion of Cuba, since you were in favor of bombing the nuclear potentiality of China, since you were in favor of nuclear bombing of, of North Vietnam, I'd be very worried about your kind of odd neurosis. I would worry about neurosis being a friend of anybody who might be a president. I would be <laughs> one of the candidates. I would say, Bill Buckley, don't stay home. I would be very worried, too, uh, if, if you had uh, uh, such a grand guignol uh, view of what it was that I've advocated. I've never advocated the nuclear bombing of North Vietnam. Uh, you yeah, have. I'll, I'll give him time and place if it amuses you. Well, you won't. I will, because I know what the nuclear bombing of Red China struck me as it struck uh, John F. Kennedy as a viable proposal in mid-summer of 1963. I ad advocated the liberation of Cuba at the same time that Mr. Kennedy ordered the liberation of Cuba. You were in favor, Bill, if we, if we don't mind. No, no, record, no, no, wait a minute, don't, don't duck away from the record. You said we should enforce the Monroe Doctrine and invade Cuba the sooner the better in your little magazine whose name will not pass my lips, April 1965. Oh. You favored bombing Red China's nuclear uh, production uh, facilities the 17th of September 1965 in Life magazine. And you suggested the atom bombing of the north of Vietnam in your little magazine, which I do not read but I'm told about, the 23rd of February 1968. So you're very hawkish. And now if both Nixon and Reagan are listening to you, I'm very worried for the country. I mean, this is before the internet, too. Imagine just being, like, having, like, kind of knowing what the guy's going to say and then having, like, the receipts, like, before the internet. <laughs> it's difficult yeah. stuff. To me, that uh, the Republican Party um, has shown a record 
of greater sobriety than Mr. Vidal, who boasts of not reading something which uh -oh. he is prepared to misquote in the presence of the person who edits it. Now, Bill Buckley, uh, if, you, if, uh, if the quotation is exact... We know that your tendency is to be feline, Mr. Yeah. Vidal, but just relax for a moment and take it very simply on it. I have not advocated, I'm not horrified at the prospect well, I just quoted who nope, said what back. and where. Now, yeah, are you no. saying you didn't say I am saying that I didn't say that. Oh, you're taking a that you're misquoting. I lost video there for a second. We're recording the podcast. If things go wrong, please don't talk about them. That's right. And about <laughs> okay. the human greed of everybody in the world except yourself. And then I'll tomorrow... There are saints. Tomorrow I'll tell what Mr. Vidal thinks about the Kennedys. Good night, and let me tell you. <laughs> Excuse me, gentlemen. It's been very enjoyable hearing you articulate two points of view that will be heard in uh, two conventions in this month. Thank you very much indeed. I think I detected some unfinished lines of thought. We'll have time to follow them through tomorrow and tomorrow. I don't know how I, if that was uh, pleasurable or whatever. I was, I was actually a little frustrating for me at points, listening to them talk past each other and talk over each other. Yeah. Uh, that happened a little less than in modern debates. Uh, modern debates, I feel like, are a little more chaotic. Definitely. Uh, but not by much. Did this happen before the one we watched last week or after? Before. Okay. So this was their first debate and then last week we watched their second debate. Our series of debates, yeah, because the uh, RNC happened before the DNC in 68. Okay. So here's uh, debate two. This is the second night. Um, I, they're probably going to pick it up where they left off in some ways. And some dissent on the now completed Republican platform from our guest commentators, author Gore Vidal. Is the dovish plank on Vietnam a cunning device to get peace-minded voters to vote for war-minded candidates? I happen to be suspicious because in 1964 I voted for Lyndon Johnson and peace. And editor William F. Buckley, Jr. The uh, platform is an excellent uh, example of the uh, capacity of a platform to reconcile different points of view. On the one hand, there is something uh, in it for most Republicans. On the other hand, a dove-minded candidate could select and stress certain phrases, as could a war-minded uh, candidate. We'll be back with a full report on all that happened in Miami in the 24 hours before the convention in one minute. Oh, it would have been kind of cool to see the commercials from 1968. <laughs> yeah, that would be. Hey, you're on, dude. <laughs> you're on. <laughs> The Republican platform completed early this morning, an issue today says that the Johnson administration's Vietnam policy has failed in every respect, and the Re Republicans now offer what is called a positive program for settlement based on self-determination, a course that will enable the South Vietnamese to... I wonder if that was like but the, the tape catching up to live right there? Or oh, I don't know. Mr. Vidal, is that an adequate statement of what has to be done about Vietnam? Well, I think Mr. Buckley uh, said it rather wisely at the top of the program that this was a plank on which both a dove and a hawk could run or take off from, to complete the metaphor. 
And I think the two principal candidates are, of course, Richard Nixon, obviously, and as an alternative, I see Ronald Reagan. And uh, I would like to, as a public service, if I may, very briefly go through some of the positions that each of these men, just quotations that they have made, because I'm genuinely puzzled as to what they would do about the Vietnam War. And I think most people are puzzled, and certainly the platform hasn't been much help. Now, Ronald Reagan, I have five statements here that he's made in the last five years. The first is, peaceful coexistence is dangerous folly. That's the 7th of November, 1963. Shortly thereafter, on the 15th of October, 1965, he said, we should declare war on Vietnam. We could pave the whole country and put parking strips on it and still be home by Christmas. A nice Damn. metaphor. Yikes. Then, in the 1st of April, 1967, he favored... He said that was Ronald Reagan that said that? Shortly thereafter, on yep. the 24th of June, 1967, he said, We have the power to wind this war up fast. I think we should use it. Now, this year, 25th of March, in U.S. News and World Report, Governor Reagan said maybe the enemy ought to have some unrest in some corner of his realm to worry about, which sounds a bit like adventurism. He then said in the same article, quote, this policy of accommodation asks us to accept the greatest possible immorality. So he's against coexistence with them. And then finally, just a few weeks ago, he said the war in Vietnam must be fought through to victory. We have been patient too long. And just a few days ago, he said that Lyndon Johnson was trying to fight the war too cheaply. Now, I'd like to ask Mr. Buckley, who is a friend of Ronald Reagan and has talked to him about the war, what will he do? Will he use ultimate weapons, or will he accommodate with the enemy? Well, I think that uh, Mr. Reagan has made it um, a lot uh, more clear than, for instance, uh, President Johnson has done, concerning whom one could very easily uh, produce uh, a series of statements concerning the Vietnam War, which are, uh, to say the least, at least uh, as confusing uh, as these. I think Mr. Reagan has been pretty well clear that he is prepared to leave alone uh, any country in the world which itself uh, is prepared to leave uh, us alone. I remember his remarking his enthusiasm for a formulation by Senator Fulbright. That is literally not what he said. Well, and also, like, <clears throat> leave us alone. What did the fucking Vietnam sh start shooting at us? Like, what is he talking about? Yeah, like, that's the opposite of what Reagan said, so... I don't know where he's getting that idea from. Pulling it out of his ass. Like, I mean, that's not a new thing, I don't think. <laughs> yep. Seven in a highly quoted speech. Uh, however, the United States may despise as obnoxious the internal doctrines of any particular nation. We have no right to attempt to control or extirpate those doctrines unless there is an effort being made to export them. And this precisely, uh, uh, precisely captures the spirit of Mr. Reagan's foreign policy, for that matter, my own. So that I think. That so wait, he went from saying this in the in the Republican convention to saying he would be open for nuking uh, Vietnam in the Democratic convention. Well, no, Vidal read him saying previously in what he called his little magazine that. <laughs> that 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 he would do that he didn't say oh, okay. it in in okay he only wrote it in his little magazine and vidal brought so it up so he so before this then he said he would nuke vietnam 
if I mean, he didn't tell, he didn't say that he never wrote those things. So yeah, I have to assume that he did write those things. So he's just lying again. Yes, of course. <laughs> Whether or not the during the past few years the great uh, hallucinations uh, under which um, uh, under which we have been uh, persuaded that there is in fact a politics of convergence whether those are dangerous hallucinations and this is really what the republican party i think is here to talk about i think it's uh, worse and however a candidate who as recently as two months ago is talking about the dangerous folly of peaceful coexistence one thing we have to remember that there are more communists than there are us we are a minority in the world and i would think that a militant hawk who would like to embark us on other foreign adventures like vietnam would be a very dangerous person to have and apparently mr richard nixon is in agreement an obscure statement of his which is extraordinarily dovish and to my mind very sensible in october of 67 in foreign affairs he said serious question whether the american public or american congress would now support a unilateral american intervention even at the request of a host government so apparently i would say that nixon uh, was going to have an extremely difficult time were people pressures in his party leading him uh, uh, into foreign adventures on the vietnam mr buckley well, I, I don't think uh, i don't think any republican uh, at least none that i can think of this this is a problem that mr dow will face more intimately in chicago i don't think any republican uh, is daunted by the mere fact of numbers. There are far more communists in the world than there are uh, Democrats, far more than there are uh, Americans. So far as we can tell, of course, the communists don't go in pre-election, so it's difficult to stipulate uh, uh, the popularity of their regimes. But our, our, our force in the world uh, is uh, based on a leverage which is one part moral, uh, and one part uh, technological. On these, we well, if, uh, if I may make a point there, that if uh, we have absolutely no moral right to be in Vietnam, I'm afraid we haven't got time to go well, into we that have in great detail. But we we have absolutely forgot all morality when we did not live by the Geneva Accords. We have about 30 seconds. Can Mr. Buckley have a uh, those 30 seconds for a rebuttal? Well, I think that there's a lot of cynicism uh, in uh, any platform. For instance. There's one phrase that says, nor have we forgotten the Cuban people who still cruelly suffer under communist tyranny. What that really means is, nor have we forgotten to forget the Cuban people uh, who still suffer under communist tyranny. This is, after all, a political convention, uh, not a convention among tablet keepers. And under the circumstances, I think they're doing pretty well. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Vidal, Mr. Buckley. I'm sorry we don't have more time, but we do have four more nights, and we'll make the most of them beginning tomorrow. Every night we intend to call on political editor Bill Long. So that was, <clears throat> was kind of interesting, just like listening, listening to him, listening to Buckley tell the same lies that he was about to tell, like the following, I think it was a couple weeks later that the Democratic National Convention was. It's, it's just, it's bizarre in a way, listening to Gore Vidal bring the receipts about what this guy has written and then have him go, well, that's, you know, that's, that's not what I meant or whatever. Yeah. He, like you said, he didn't even deny it. So like he just got caught lying. So weird. So weird. So we got part, uh, we got debate three. This is part one of two. I think these, this is split into two. Probably this is probably like old YouTube before you could put up videos more than a certain length.
day of the Republican convention, we've heard a few uh, all-right speeches and quite a few ho-hum type speeches. We would like now to demonstrate how the English language ought to be used by two craftsmen, our guest commentators. <laughs> how to lie and how to call somebody out on lying. Buckley Jr., a conservative Republican, columnist and commentator, and one-time candidate for mayor of New York. And Gore Vidal, author of Among Other Things. I feel like this is the laziest backdrop they've had so far. About a convention called the Best Man. Maybe they're at a theater. Mr. Buckley, you've studied the potential <laughs> candidates. Which two do you think would make the strongest Republican ticket? <clears throat> I should think that uh, among those who are nowadays being uh, considered, the two strongest would be Mr. Nixon and Mr. Reagan. I say, say that not only because I consider them to be <clears throat> competent, but because I do feel that uh, both Mr. Nixon uh, and Mr. Reagan uh, have a sense of uh, a communicable a conviction that the Republican Party has something distinctive to offer. There is, I think, a little bit too much in some of the others of the sense that schematically the Republican Party ought to arrive at position ABC this particular year. But the other two, I think, uh, grew up in the Republican Party with some uh, sense of mission. Mr. Vidal, can you... I don't think he said anything. Yeah. I was trying to parse what he said and make it mean something, but <laughs> it just doesn't. Right. He, he wasn't like, oh, these two people have these policies I like, or... Because the, the guy asked a question like, what should the ticket be? Not like, who are the two frontrunners? It sounded like he answered the question, who are the two frontrunners? not what should the no. ticket be because it's almost never shakes out. And I don't know if it was different, um, you know, what uh, pushing 50 years ago or pushing 60 years ago, actually, if it was different then, but I don't think it was. I don't think that the front runner tended to pick whoever came in second because they ended up going after each other probably during the primaries. They wanted to pick somebody who they hadn't spent a lot of time going after for obvious rhetorical reasons later in, <laughs> in the, in the general, right? Yeah. Like <clears throat> in 2016, the smart move for Hillary Clinton probably was to pick the second place person, Bernie Sanders. But then she would have to deal with, oh, you said this about him and you said this about him and you said this about him. Why did you pick him as your as your running mate? And that's sort of the sort of the way that it's sort of bad, kind of, because if you want to win you would think that you would pick the second most popular person in your party according to yeah. the election, but it, it never seems to shake out that way. I think it worked out really well when, when Biden picked Harris though. And like, there were some of those accusations of like, well, you said this to Biden or you said this to Harris, but like a lot of that was, was answered with basically like, yeah, we can have disagreements and still be good candidates in the same party. Right. But she also wasn't second. Like she was doing quite, she did quite poorly. Most of his, most of his time was spent dealing with one again, one Mr. Bernard Sanders. And I feel like that rhetoric would have been more useful possibly against a Biden Sanders ticket. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, Definitely Sanders was ahead of her, and I think Elizabeth Warren was ahead of her. I think both, almost everyone I, was ahead of her. I would agree that b both of them would would have made better picks. Maybe, but or rhetorically, maybe not. We don't know. 
you know, those are counterfactuals. We don't know what the results would have been, but they, yeah, true. it's not, it's, it's almost never that the second place person gets picked. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost always someone who wasn't running. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> someone who's at least liked politically, but wasn't involved in the race. Yeah. So it was kind of out of, <clears throat> out of the ordinary for, um, Biden to pick one of his primary opponents at all. Yeah. The onerous effort of hypothesizing yourself a Republican for just a moment and saying which two you think would be strongest if you wanted to win for the Republicans? Well, that's quite easy for me since I'm not, don't think of myself as a Democrat either. I would say that watching the convention this morning, it became quite clear to me that John Wayne and his daughter would be the ideal ticket. <laughs> oh, shit. Hey, man, hey, man, you didn't live to see it, dude. You didn't live to see the functional equivalent of John Wayne running the fucking country, dude. <laughs> George W. Bush thought he was John Wayne, but he wasn't a, he's uh, no, but almost nobody's as big a piece of shit as John Wayne. I think this was the year that John Wayne wanted to fight somebody at the fucking, at the RNC, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> It was, or was it the Oscars or something? I know it was an Oscars and it might've been the same, might've been 68 that John Wayne like wanted to fight somebody at the Oscars and they had to like hold him back. I would say that if Rockefeller and Percy were a ticket, they could certainly do very, very well in picking up a great deal of disaffected democratic votes, particularly if McCarthy should be spurned in Chicago, which may very well happen. I could see about half of the young activists of the McCarthy movement coming out for Rockefeller and Percy. Rockefeller and Reagan would certainly be a much more certain ticket for the Republicans to win with. But if they did win, I wouldn't like to be Mr. Rockefeller. Somebody <laughs> from Orange County might speed up the electoral process. So all in all, I would say that Rockefeller was the best man for the independents and Democrats that might vote for a Republican. One of the conspicuous features of this convention has been the way all the Republican leaders have played down ideology. There have been no floor fights, none are scheduled, the platform wasn't really fought over. Um, this is good perhaps for winning votes, but it does blur the rationale of the Republican Party. Mr. Buckley, what does the Republican Party stand for now? Is it in flux or what? Yes, it is in, in flux. Or actually, all political parties should be to a certain extent in flux. The question is whether or not the Republican Party uh, believes um, uh, strongly enough in a series of uh, uh, convictions to, uh, uh, to convince a lot of voters that uh, there is inherent in the Republican view of life a certain stability which is associated with the growth of the United States. Now, if I may say so, Mr. Smith, it's extremely interesting uh, uh, and extremely lively to sit by and watch uh, professional uh, critics of the Republican Party uh, burlesque uh, people whom uh, the Republicans themselves tend to like. You, you, you may have forgotten that a few moments ago we were treated to Mr. Gorvidal, the, the playwright, saying uh, that after all, Ronald Reagan was nothing more than a, quote, aging Hollywood juvenile actor. Now, to, to begin with, everybody is aging. <laughs> Uh, even uh, even you are, uh, Bill. Uh, you are, Bill. Yes. Yeah, so, so Perceptibly before so, so our eyes. That adjective oh, no. oh. extraordinary to the human understanding. Then he said Hollywood. Now, one was either acted in Hollywood during the time Mr. Reagan acted, or one didn't uh, act uh, at all 
or Mr. Vidal, <laughs> sends all of his books to Hollywood, many of which are, are rejected, but some of which are, are grind out in some way. Oh, but wait a minute. Aren't most books, like, rejected for being turned into a screenplay? Yes. You could have a very successful book and shop it around, and nobody wants to make it a screenplay just for whatever reason. Too hard. The book has too much internal, like, internal monologue of the characters, and so that makes it, like, a little more difficult for film. Like... Uh, literary works in film are actually different art forms and what's going to work in, in a literary art is not always going to work in film. So the idea that this guy's books, which did quite well, weren't turned into movies. Like that's not really a dig at him as an author. Cause he's not, doesn't, he's not writing a screenplay. Yeah. That's why a film adaptation is a thing and not people reading from a book. <laughs> right. And like, like, like I said, maybe his books for whatever reason, weren't easily adaptable to a screenplay. And so that didn't happen. And then he just got to count his book money and not his movie money. I'm also very interested to understand how William Buckley thinks that this is related to what the Republican Party stands for. Um, you can tell these two people don't like each other. <laughs> right? <laughs> like on a personal level, they don't like each other. Yeah. Like they would not. Like, they'd be probably polite if they were at the same dinner party, but I also get the feeling they wouldn't be at the same dinner party, right? Yeah. <laughs> they travel in different circles and whatnot. So, <clears throat> I think that that's on full display here, and that ain't never going to change. Like, if people don't like each other and they're up to debate what somebody thinks are serious issues, they're going to take personal barbs at each other because they don't like each other, and that's what fucking human beings do. But he could have at least answered the question first. Like, he just entirely dismissed the question. Yeah, uh, Gore Vidal answered the last question pretty well. He's like, I think that if they did Rockefeller and Reagan, that they would probably win. That was the answer to the question that was asked. And this this guy, he's like, he was talking about Hollywood, but the, the, the crux of what he was saying about Reagan is that he's a juvenile who's aging. That's, he's saying that he's immature, that he has, doesn't seem to have grown up, that he seems to be you know, infantile or childish in some way, not that he's a Hollywood actor. Yeah. He's got, he called him a juvenile actor, uh, which is presumably to be distinguished from uh, an adult uh, uh, actor. Now, my, my point is, yes, that if, you play, if you play this sort of a game, you can say, look, I don't think it's right to present Mr. Gore Vidal as a political commentator of any consequence, since he is nothing more than... Uh, than a literary producer of, uh, of, of a perverted Hollywood-minded prose. Now, now Bill, I, I, I think, think this uh, kind of a very simple reason. Like, what are you talking about? This was a person who was, a lot of his writing, he, he wrote more than books. He, they're talking about his books had sex in them. Um, and the, anytime they bring up, he brings up like perverted and stuff, it's because this was an out gay man in 1968. That's what that's about. Mm -hmm. And it worked in 1968. It still works today in some circles. So if his books included sex, well, books can include sex. If they're about people, people have sex. One might argue that we wouldn't be here if people didn't have sex. I mean, that, that's the, the easiest argument to make. I mean, now we have ways around it, but uh, uh, for a pretty long time in our history, we didn't, we, there was really no other way, you know? 
that uh, now, Bill, if I may say, just, so, just, just I, as I, I think ABC I think has the right, idea, Bill, just as I think not, ABC has the authority, now, Bill, to invite, I'm now. almost through. No, you're not. Uh, in every sense, let Mr. Buckley finish this sentence. Then, just Mr. Vidal, I assure you, time to refute it. That ABC has the authority to invite the author of Myra Breckenridge. Uh, to comment, to uh, comment on uh, Republican politics, I think that the people of California uh, have the right, when they speak overwhelmingly, to project somebody into national politics, even if he did commit the sin of having uh, acted in movies uh, that were not written by Mr. Vidal. How about Mr. Vidal's answer to that now? Well, as usual, Mr. Buckley, uh, with his enormous and thrilling charm, uh, manages to get away from the issue toward the comedy. He's always oh, shit. He agrees with you, HK. <laughs> also managed to throw in a couple barbs about the guy's, like, fucking charm. <laughs> it's absolutely not charming. That, like, faux, like, you could tell he's, it's, he's, like, Buckley is, like, forcing what we now call vocal fry. Yeah. Uh, Tucker Carlson is very famous for it. Does very much the same thing. In fact, this guy and Tucker Carlson are... Very much alike. Right, I think, and almost always in the wrong. And you certainly must, uh, Bill, maintain your reputation as being the Marie Antoinette to the right wing <laughs> and continually imposing your own rather bloodthirsty neuroses on, on the political campaign. In the case of Ronald Reagan, I said he's a juvenile actor in the sense that uh, that was pretty much what he was cast as. As a presidential candidate, which is, after all, what we're talking about, and since we, it's, uh, it is our country to think that a man who, as of yesterday, was saying that the administration is trying to pour down our throats uh, what might have been good medicine during the days of the Depression, but he said, the patient got well a long time ago. That means the United States. This will come as news to the 30 million poor people. It will come as news to the people in the ghettos, the people that I'm afraid uh, voted against you so heavily when you ran for mayor, Bill. When you kept reminding the Negroes in Harlem that uh, was it their landlords who came up tippy-toe in one of your favorite verbs and threw the garbage out of the windows for them. And, uh, no, I think all in all... <laughs> You're pretty hard that, 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 that a man who is, uh, has finally said, as of yesterday morning, Ronald Reagan says, the only function of government is to get out of our way and leave us alone as much as possible. Now, on this occasion, I'm afraid I have to agree with William uh, Buckley, the distinguished thinker. I believe that is the function of outer space. Right. <laughs> because if it were to not leave us alone, we'd be dead. <laughs> I have a treasury here. Today, as never before, the state is the necessary instrument of our proximate deliverance. As usual, in your slightly Latinate and inaccurate style. But you do feel, as most of us do, that... Uh, the state must have some responsibility for what happens in the country. And now you have a Ronald Reagan whom you approve of who does not want to use the federal government to do anything at all. Mr. Smith, uh, I, I confess that anything complicated confuses Mr. Vidal. <laughs> this has been plain for a very long time. He has a great difficulty reconciling uh, uh, even uh, axiomatic positions concerning political philosophy. But I, I was invited here <laughs> and am prepared to try to talk about the Republican convention. Yes. But, but I maintain that it's very difficult to do so when you have somebody like this uh, saying... Uh, but wait a minute, you were asked a direct question the last time and you just <laughs> didn't answer it. Like, the the, the, the the moderator was like, okay, time to move on to the next question and ask the question. And then you were, you, Mr. Buckley, were the one who couldn't answer the question and had to, like, attempt to, and I do mean attempt to, insult 
your your opponent, which you're not good at and you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> it's not that insults are bad. It's that you have to be good at them for them to be effective. Yep. I completely agree. And now he's com- he's literally complaining about it. <laughs> he's complaining, but I'm not good at insults. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's like a... I'm dealing with people on a daily basis who are just happy to smear me dishonestly. Yep. Nixon, who was about to be nominated, I gather, from listening to you, uh, that uh, there, he is running for no, quote, discernible purpose other than his own best interest. Now, what does that mean, discernible? I'll tell you. Uh, would you like me to what, tell you what it means? No, not till I'm... Okay, so we'll get to part two here. Got cut in a weird place, but I think it was... I think they were just trying to make sure they were under 10 minutes, old YouTube rules and stuff. So here, we're, uh, we're back. Uh, yes, he has won every single primary contest that he entered. Uh, he has shown to be a heavy favorite in every poll uh, conducted among Republican voters and uh, uh, independent voters. I have no doubt that he would lose uh, some Democratic elections if the vote were limited to, uh, to uh, waspish Democrats who like to live out their life in, in, in Rome. But why does he say no discernible political interest? Except presumably because he likes to be naughty, uh, which, uh, which has proved to be a professionally highly merchandisable vice. Not unlike your so public vices of equal wickedness, Bill. No, I have no public Now you say, uh, you say that, I, that for no discernible reason is he's running. Well, I'll tell you why I'm dissatisfied with him. And I think most of the country should be somewhat alarmed. He has no position on Vietnam at all. This is a major issue in the United States. It's a major moral issue. It's a major economic issue. What does Nixon say on this? Well, he wants to have a summit with the Russians, a hard-hitting summit meeting, he says. This is, incidentally, the candidate the Russians most detest. This oh, it being a proxy war, actually, that's not the worst idea. Yeah may be very helpful the fact they hate him to a few Wallaceites, but it's not going to do him much good at a conference. He, he, he issued an economic statement. What did he come out for? Higher in, interest rates. And then for the ghettos, what does he have to say about what is in effect a civil war in the United States? Well, he'll give tax deductions to businesses that want to go and work in the ghetto, and uh, he'll, uh, he'll install a computer to tell them where the jobs are. Now, I don't call that much uh, that's discernible to the naked eye, except somebody now, playing it very safe to get elected. Mr. Dahl, your, uh, your description of the naked eye hardly fits that of somebody who is moderately well-informed. I have no doubt that there, uh, there is somebody in Haight-Ashbury or Greenwich Village who considers that your caricature... Uh, Greenwich Village. Again, with the gay shit. Stetching. Oh, I don't. Uh, Mr. Nixon uh, has uh, uh, elaborated at some length his position on Vietnam. Uh, He is committed to the rightness of that endeavor in Vietnam. Uh, He does believe that the United States uh, government, as a result of a schizophrenia which is bound in Lyndon Johnson, has not vigorously prosecuted what is in fact a war, a war which he relates to our own best interests. For you to suggest uh, in the see like him saying has not vigorously prosecuted the war and then you think about what he was saying about using uh, nuclear weapons in the war it seems to me like maybe that's what buckley would you know what i'm saying it what do you mean has not vigorously prosecuted the war you can't just go around fucking wiping out civilian populations 
And I think that's what he means by not vigorously prosecuting the war or whatever. Yeah, he means turning Vietnam into a crater. Attempting to accelerate uh, democratic achievements, that all he has done uh, uh, is, is, is speak in such burps, is hardly to do uh, a him or you a, a service. I'm so happy to see your elegant prose style at its very best tonight, Bill. It's very inspiring to those of us listening to it. I think you've been But I wonder, but I wonder, but I wonder... He can't just laugh at a fucking gag, right? Like when he gets, when, when, like every time that um, Buckley has tried to dig at Vidal, like on a personal level, Vidal just kind of laughs. Buckley can't do it. He always has to try to clap back and he's just not good at it. Like he's so bad at it. He's he's like bad at it like Dr. Oz, I'm sorry, Mr. Oz is bad at clapping back at John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. He's that bad at it. <laughs> if Nixon is uh, going to prosecute this war seriously, one would like to know what he's going to do. He's ruled out atomic weapons already. He's pretty much ruled out an invasion of the North. He does want in some way to cool it, but he won't tell us. Now, I think he ought to. I would also be interested to know, would he be interested in your project, since you are a great friend of his and uh, professional entertainer of the far right, uh, does he favor your plan for bombing North uh, China, the nuclear capacity of the Chinese, in a very moving piece? You know what's amazing is they, they had no idea this was going to happen, but one of the good things Nixon did was to normalize relationships with China, our relationship with China while he was the president. Yeah. Like you said, he wasn't the worst. No, Reagan seems to have been. Yeah. A blow for peace in, uh, the, in that magazine. I will not oh, and he did the EPA, too. December 1964. We know that you, you like nothing out. to sully your lips. No, you came out. You, <laughs> you will eat it first. You came out in favor of history apes for such an act of greatness. That is the bombing of the Chinese nuclear capacity. Right. Yeah. In 1965, I, you came out with the same thing. I, you, do you I want to talk about my background and, and its policies? I, um, Dude, it's good to like keep going out. If this guy's going to go after Vidal on like basically stuff, he's like, oh, this is... He basically goes after him for being like a, like a socialite or whatever is what I'm hearing him go after Vidal for, for being an author, for being like a, like a city liberal. And Vidal is going after him for being like, why do you want to bomb a nuclear facility? He's not saying it, but like, that's like a dirty bomb. Yeah. Like, why do you want to commit war crimes? Right. Said some administration Democrats have said they could accept that Vietnam plank in the Republican platform. They could accept which plank? The Vietnam plank in the Republican platform. Yes, it, it is an ambiguous uh, plank, and there is no question, but that the... Uh, the war in Vietnam, having been so so badly fought, not as a result of any uh, failure in our military, but as a result of a failure in our policy, has led to a great confusion. The war in Vietnam is not justifiable, uh, uh, in the opinion of Mr. Nixon, uh, unless it in fact represents uh, a salient uh, which is armed by the communist world, however loosely spoken of, which is directed against our best interest. It was because Mr. Kennedy and subsequently Mr. Johnson believed that it was, in which point of view every single one of the people who are professionally charged with evaluating America's uh, interests concurred that it was, that we went to war there, but we failed to, to win it. And the failure to win it has caused uh, a number 
of, of developments, not least of which uh, is the, the domestic uh, turmoil uh, from which uh, Mr. Vidal and his party seek to profiteer. Mr. Vidal, what would you consider a satisfactory plank br briefly and generally on Vietnam? Well, you're not going to get a satisfactory plank. I don't, certainly not out of the Republican Party. One did not get it, nor would you probably out of the Democrats. Everybody's slightly afraid of the dove-hawk labels, and I think uh, the platform of the Republicans is one, as they keep pointing out, anybody can run on it, a hawk or a dove. I think a satisfactory one would be an admission that uh, the American empire has certain very plain limits, that it was an immoral act, are going in there to, to begin with by not holding the elections, which the Geneva Accords in 1954 guaranteed. We then came a cropper, and we have everybody to thank for it. We have Eisenhower to begin with, mildly, Kennedy a bit more so, and Johnson, uh, the super hawk. I'd, I'm not at all convinced that Barry Goldwater, had he been elected president, wouldn't have been just as much of an activist. But these empires are very dangerous things he, won the to war, possess, no. as Pericles once pointed out. And uh, once you get one, it's very difficult to let it go. But if we don't let it go, it's going to wreck us economically. We're already in trouble. And uh, it has certainly divided the country at a time when resources should go to the slums and to the poor and to trying to revise an extremely shabby country. Well. Uh, the, the country is not quite um, so shabby as Mr. Donald uh, believes. It will be shabbier after the, the Republicans get in. The, the, figure, <laughs> the figure 30 uh, million poor uh, is, of course, a figure completely at the mercy of largely arbitrary statistics as to what... Oh, they, he's doing the fucking Fox News thing where they say, oh, yeah, well, the poors have big screen TVs. <clears throat> right? <laughs> right? That's what he's yeah. doing. They have refrigerators, yeah. HK. They have, did you know that the poor have a refrigerator if they have a have a an apartment? Yeah, therefore, that's that's the maximum for them. They shouldn't get any more. And the fact that they still talk about a big screen TV. Did you know that buying a smaller TV is more expensive than buying like a sixty five inch <laughs> TV now? Because nobody wants the small one, so yeah. there's less demand for it, and so they don't make as many, and the economy of scale doesn't work. But also, like. My first big screen TV was a T my parents got a bigger TV and gave me their flat screen. And so like I had a big screen TV, I guess, but I didn't even buy it. <laughs> like what if your and neighbor like gives things... you their, what if your neighbor gives you their old TV or your friend, you're, you have a friend who got like a big bonus at work and they buy a brand new TV. They're like, Oh, I noticed when I was at your place last time, your TV kept turning it off. Is it okay if I bring my old one over here so I don't have to pay to dispose it? There's nothing wrong with it. I just got a bonus at work. Like he's like, it like leaves out like all of this, like the stuff that happens that leaves out like people knowing other people and people helping other people and people giving each other gifts and stuff. And he's doing that. He's like, oh, we've arbitrarily defined poverty. Well, it's like, well, I guess at some point you gotta. Otherwise, you just don't define it. But it's also like the these kind of things, like physical goods like that, they, like those goods depreciate, the goods that are made. And also the newer goods get cheaper. So as a function of like a percentage of your income that goes towards a big screen TV or a microwave or a refrigerator that's always getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Like what, what really matters is how much are you spending on, on things like rent, food, insurance, uh, medical care, like the things that you, 
that the sort of consumerism economy of scale thing doesn't work on. Right. Like, are you okay? So that's great. You, you had a, you had a fat month or whatever, or you got a gift and now you have a big TV, but does that big TV make it easier for you to deal with your month to month expenses? And the answer is no. Yeah. Like you, you spent $300 on a new TV, but your rent went up a hundred dollars a month. Then in three months, You've paid more on your new rent than it costs to buy the TV. Right. And yeah, it's like, so like rent and like education, those things have gone so high up as a percentage of income in the past 30 or 40 or 50 years. Like if you look at how much percentage of income it took to pay for tuition in 1970 versus now 2022, like it is insane how how much those things have have inflated. Not inflation as in it costs more because money is worth less, but like it literally costs more. Like if you take if you account for inflation, it still costs more and it costs more for the average income because the average income compared with inflation hasn't gone up in that same time period. Right. <clears throat> and that's why we don't factor in how much is a big screen TV when we decide is the cost of living gone up, right? Because it's a one-time purchase. Yeah. And what he's saying here is he's like, he's going to say, oh, these 30 million people aren't that poor. He's got, I don't know, maybe he's going to say most of them have a fucking refrigerator. If he says most of them have a refrigerator, we're just going to, I'm just going to fucking, I don't know, I'm just going to start breaking things in the fucking studio. <laughs> uh, let me just say, say, put it this way, that if the same figures nowadays used in constant dollars, to produce 30 million American poor people had been used in 1929, then 65% of the American people would have been judged poor by, by those standards. The point is, of course, the Republican Party uh, is aware that there is not nowadays an American imperialist. Well, now he just literally used, like, inflation metrics. Right. You want to be in Vietnam because the Chase National Bank uh, struggles to establish a, a branch there. This is the hobgoblinization Gentlemen, of the Marxists. You, you have just about have, I think, one concluding sentence apiece. Can you give us one? I will, Mr. Vidal. I would say that Mr. Buckley has always has misstated the case on poverty, as he has on much else. That there are over 30 million people living at the poverty line. And the Republican Party, according to its platform, which I've read very carefully, is going to benefit uh, the uh, insurance agencies, the private interests uh, in great detail, and nothing at all. Mr. Buckley. Well, I think that it is something for which um, all of us have to be grateful, that there are left in America people who believe in the democratic process sufficiently to know that um, occasionally people can penetrate uh, such myths as have been energetically projected by Mr. Vidal, uh, and that they uh, uh, choose not to avail themselves of the alternative that Mr. Vidal offers them up, which would be uh, not only uh, a philosophy and an economy of stagnation, but also a spiritual world of stagnation. Well, thank you very much indeed, gentlemen. While William Buckley and Gore Vidal have been taking a second... Okay, so from that, he you were right, he literally used... Um, and not for nothing, in the, the 20s, late 20s, we were just entering the Great Depression, I think. So even, mm -hmm. if, it, even if he wasn't using inflationary metrics, like that was during a depression. 
So yeah, that that's what a depression is. During a depression, it's people would people would think that the whole thing goes down. Well, no, the rich actually get richer, and the the more and more people fall into the category of poor. That's not what a depression is. That's just the result on a society generally when the when an economy goes into depression. And so using like 1929 as a metric, well, yeah, then I guess that was like the worst economic time, not just for America, for a lot of the world, the worst economic time a lot of the world had ever seen. And so what a strange year specifically to pick. Yeah. It's like strange. It, it's like picking nineteen ninety nine or two thousand to be like, well, venture capital is doing great now, you know, because <laughs> in nineteen ninety nine, all the people lost their pets dot com money and shit. Like, <laughs> like you can you can like selectively pick a time frame and say we're doing great now in comparison. And if you pick nineteen twenty nine, or depending on like where your money was, even if you were like middle class in nineteen ninety nine, if you were if you were if you were heavily invested in technology in 1999 middle class people got their lunch eight or if you pick 2008 2009 people who bought their house got eaten for lunch people who had just bought their first house got fucked so now oh uh, people who own houses are doing great now compared to 2008 or 2009 it's like good job thanks people who are buying their first house are doing <laughs> doing well compared to one of the worst things that ever happened to people who bought their first house thanks <laughs> Yeah. Just more examples of Buckley being extremely dishonest or like just cherry picking, cherry picking data like that. Like, I don't know. I feel like that 1929 thing was just so blatant and brazen that Gore Vidal didn't even have to respond to it <laughs> because of how obvious it is to anybody who like took sixth grade American history and knew what the fuck happened. Like in 1929, the, the, the fucking, the financial system collapsed and the government hadn't like kicked into gear to try to help anybody yet because they were ill equipped for it. So. Yeah. And at the time that was like 30 years prior. So that would be like us talking about what would that be? 1992. 1992 was baller compared to now. <laughs> the middle class was doing really well in 1992. Yeah, but that was the beginning of the decline of uh of middle class wages going up. And also I'm um I look at it from a lens of in 1992 I wasn't 18 yet and both of my parents were working in Silicon Valley not necessarily both at tech firms but doing jobs that were like tech jo tech related jobs. And so, and all their friends were generally going to be in those kinds of fields too. And everybody around me, their parents, people at school and stuff, because of where I lived in Fremont, like all that money was falling from the sky. I mean, if I lived in uh, Flint, Michigan, maybe my opinion in 1992 might've been quite different. Yeah. Cause there wasn't no, wasn't no tech firms in Flint, Michigan. Right. Or if there were actually, they, I was wrong. I think the the wages started stagnating, like the wage increase of the middle class started stagnating in in like the seventies. Right, but again, again, it was like with boom times. Still, there were still boom times for middle class people yeah. in the basically ninety two to ninety eight was one of those boom times. If you lived in a big city that had some sort of 
like tech base. It wasn't just here in the Bay Area. LA, the people in LA were doing pretty well. People in Miami, people in Austin, because Austin was starting to come up as a tech place. But then there were cities like Detroit where that wasn't the case. Yeah. Detroit was in free fall in the in the eighties and nineties. Like economic free fall. So we're gonna watch debate four. This will be the the last of the GOP debate. And I wonder if um I wonder if uh Buckley's gonna get mad and hurl a slur at this guy again. While we wait while we while we wait for the I'd like to call on our for the VCR to start working. That's a word invented by the BBC in London and a very good one. I beg them to look beyond the nomination and to suggest I don't think the VCR was around in 68. What issues can the Republicans use effectively no. to win? For example, I'm thinking of the polls today. Or at least not for there might have been like some kind of magnetic tape but not for consumers. Oh yeah, for sure there was magnetic tape. Is he not about as hawkish as President Johnson? But the VCR had like some very specific innovations. Buckley, the editor of the National Review, who ran for mayor of New York and said that if he won, his first official act would be to demand a recount. And Gore Vidal, the man, that's a bad joke. Who ran as a Democrat? That's like the I I would I don't want to be part of a club that would have me as a member joke. It's just like a fucking hack joke and got more votes in his district than any Democrat has got since 1910, but lost. First, Mr. Vidal. Well, it's a difficult... I think any political campaign depends pretty much upon uh, who is... Uh, Depending on how you define VCR, it's pretty plain to it was invented in 1963, so I was wrong. So this, the thing we're watching, was obviously taken from a VCR tape, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was. Night, unless there's some extraordinary uh, surprise out here on the floor that it's going to be Richard Nixon. And frankly, I'm, I'm sort of puzzled by the man. I mean, he's going to do something on the peace issue. I think it's, he has moved his own position from extreme hawk to, uh, I would say, uh, rather moderate. He's made many sort of loose remarks today, talking about... And we're going to sit down and have a conference. Very unlike the old Nixon. I think one of these things about that logo is awesome. He once said something. They should go back to that logo. The best example of a combination of idealist and practical politician is Theodore Roosevelt. The old RNC elephant logo. He would compromise all over the place, and I suspect that really is uh, the kind of candidate he will be. He will adjust himself to the issues, and who knows? He might even be, heaven help us, a good president. Though I certainly doubt it. Mr. Buckley? Well, I think that uh, 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 Mr. Nixon recognizes that the Vietnam situation is in flux. Uh, the reason why it is in flux, it seems to me, is suggested by Mr. Nixon's analysis during the past couple of years, uh, namely this, that uh, the President of the United States has not, as a result of a division within his own party, uh, succeeded uh, in coming out with a truly intelligible explanation of what it is that we're doing there and what it is that we ought to do in order to get out of there. Under the circumstances, I myself predict that the Vietnam issue is not going to be a great issue during the campaign, that it will largely be uh, a period uh, uh, comparable to that during the summer of 1952, uh, the Korean period during which discernible differences between Mr. Eisenhower uh, and uh, uh, Mr. Stevens uh, weren't really what uh, mobilized the electorate, rather a feeling 
that one person as distinguished from the other would be able to approach the problem with a fresh uh, perspective and a sense of national uh, energy which the incumbent couldn't dispose of. What, what other issues are there? What issue do you think can be used effectively? Well, I think there are two primarily. Number one, a law and order. I wish there was a way of saying law and order that didn't make a, a, a critic say, oh, you're talking about the racial question. Now, I, I would like to know how to say law and order by other means, but still mean law and order. I'm sure he would love to be able to talk about racism without being accused of being a racist. Yeah, it's. I was going to wait till the end to say this, but it does strike me that in 1968, the moderator of this hasn't seen fit to bring up anything really having to do with what was happening in the country in 1968. Like it was a tumultuous time. It was, there was a lot of like, there was like a lot of racial problems in this country. And it's, it's striking to me that the moderator hasn't brought that stuff up and that neither of the panelists have really brought, really talked about this, the civil rights movement and the, uh, the, like the, af- the, the, the blowback after, you know, the, the civil rights act was passed and stuff. That's kind of striking about this. Yeah. Significant uh, issue. And one of the problems that we face and that Nixon's going to face is this. What do we do about the growth of really mutinous members of the American community? People who say, look, I don't care what the community says. I don't care what the majority says. As far as I'm concerned, I'm going to follow my exquisite conscience and do precisely what I desire to do. Now, these people have got to be faced not only politically but philosophically. And this is but if, if what is, they're doing isn't illegal, then what the fuck do you care if they're going to follow their conscience in their life? <laughs> if, if they're not hurting anyone. Again, I think this is like, this is dog whistle shit, I think, for his opponent being homosexual. Yep. I, I don't know. I, I can't right. go back into I can't go back to 1968 and read this guy's mind, but <clears throat> it seems some of the stuff seems kind of culture warry, and it, <clears throat> at this time, man, Gore Vidal was one of very few public figures who was out and proud or whatever, however you want to say it, and so anytime he delves into this stuff, I'm just wondering if he's trying to like dig at uh, Gore Vidal being a big old mo yeah i think you're definitely right uh because he's not talking about people committing crimes he's talking about people doing stuff he doesn't agree with right he was calling it immoral or whatever saying that they wanted to live by their own morality but if they're not hurting anybody else i fucking i thought that's what i thought that's what people were supposed to do in this is america motherfucker <laughs> In my judgment, Mr. Nixon uh, has got to elevate into the status of a genuine national debate. Mr. Vidal, what's your comment on that? Well, I think this is, of course, an area in which uh, Nixon's own conscience may be indeed exquisite. I don't think he himself is going to be much use. There was an interesting story in, uh, in the papers tonight. Somebody went into a Southern caucus with a tape recorder, unbeknownst to the caucus and unbeknownst to Nixon. And Nixon said to the Southern Caucus, of course, I am against open housing. And I want you to know this. It was a bad decision, I know, but I had to come out for it openly. Otherwise, there would be a fight at the convention. But I want you to understand that. Well, now, open housing, first of all, this is, again, Richard Nixon adjusting to the political realities. And perhaps it would be cruel to say, well, he shouldn't do it. After all, he is a politician. But I don't think that he has 
any plan at all other than just trying to keep it as cool as possible because he doesn't come from a party which is, has, as far as I can think of, any ideas at all. His own plans for the ghettos are, I think, one computer to tell people where to find jobs. As for the mutiny in the land, which Mr. Buckley refers... God, back then, a computer would have had a hard time with that, too. <laughs> uh, by the way, that was the last time that Nixon ever had any sort of trouble involving a tape recorder. There's mutiny in the land. <laughs> when you have 16 million people in poverty and 16 million people in abject poverty, uh, and these are actual statistics, and when something like only 10 to 11 billion dollars is needed to end it all according to health, education, welfare, uh, I suspect that you're going to need some sort of a program. And this year, and this convention has been fascinating to me, because not only has there been no ideology or what there is is subliminal and done in code, but there have been basically no programs at all. So I'd be, I'm just, I must say about Mr. Nixon's campaign, I'm just curious. I don't know what he'll do. Well, in, in the first place, <clears throat> Uh, assuming that Mr. Vidal uh, can uh, create uh, a stati uh, statistics by simply uh, promulgating them, uh, the answer... No, he just told you where the statistic came from. <laughs> I don't remember what he said, but he told you where it's from. If there isn't such a correlation as he suggests, if there are 16 million uh, people uh, today uh, below the poverty level, so were there uh, four years ago, and so were there... Uh, eight years ago, and so where that during all of those years when we have had a beneficent uh, democratic administration, the point of the fact is that most of the people who are leading the way to mutiny uh, are not the poor. They are the William Sloan Coffins and the Dr. Benjamin Sparks, and it's these people that, that, that uh, I, I think we need to concern ourselves about if we are... Con oh my God, the fucking, he just, he just did the fucking, he just did the, the, the like, the liberal educated elite thing he was saying that it's not the poor it's the I, the the people he mentioned are like were like well-known kind of liberal educated elites at the time he just did that thing hmm. fucking nothing ever changes dude <laughs> yeah. future of the democratic experiment now i have no doubt that an effort is going to be made uh, as Mr. Vidal just finished making it, to assume that there is a dark, anti-Negro uh, prejudice implicit in republicanism. It is a, an effort that has already been successfully made. Let me give you a very brief example. Uh, last night, Mr. Vidal said only 2% of the people who are here in my... So wait, here, pa pause, it, pause it for a second. Like, he's saying... We're not racist. We just don't want black people in our neighborhood. Yeah. That's fucking racist. <laughs> right? Because it's just a fucking plot of land and that's just a person. They can actually fucking live there if they want. But yeah. I wouldn't want to, if I don't know, maybe fucking, I don't want to live in this guy's neighborhood. Like, he's like, he's whining. Like, why is everyone calling us racist just because we don't want to be around black people? Again, this it's is fucking racist. This is in the wake of the Civil Rights Act passing and the party line shift happening in the South, where a lot of the Dixiecrats ended up joining the Republican Party, and a lot of the northern, like liberal leaning, liberal on social issues, as we would say, Republicans ended up having to ended up joining the Democratic Party because they agreed with the Civil Rights Act. This was this is like in the wake of 
a massive party line shift in the United States in the beginning. And this is right when the beginning of what we euphemistically call the Southern strategy started. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the fair housing act, right? Right. Well, he was, yeah, they were talking about housing a minute ago and like the, I forget what they were like. They were called, he called it fair housing. I forget what he called it, but he was against it. He said open housing, open housing. And that was like an anti-discrimination, um, in housing position that the Republican party yeah. did take in 1968 as part of the party platform. But Nixon was recorded saying but he didn't he like was, it. Yeah. He was saying like Nixon was recorded saying he was against it. This is like a really tumultuous and interesting time in history and watching Buckley kind of do kind of do the kind of do a little bit of like a racism two-step here. is pretty funny. <laughs> on Negroes, this is a considerable affront considering that they represent uh, 11% of the American population. I did a little uh, probing into the statistics and I find out that the percentage of, uh, of Negroes who registered with Mr. Gallup, their preference for the Republican Party, is 2.4%, so that they are, roughly speaking, uh, adequately uh, uh, represented here on a one-man-one vote basis, where the Democratic Party uh, you have 15% of the people who are registered as Democrats uh, are, are, are representing the Negro population, and yet they have only a 5% representation. Now, just as I think it's wrong for a Republican to say that the Democrats are, by these tokens, are anti-Negro, so I think it is wrong for Democrats to reason oppositely from undernourished uh, statistics. Uh, the statistics are well-nourished, uh, Bill, and the 2% uh, reflects the fact that the, the Negroes feel there's nothing much to be got for them in the Republican Party, nor is there. Well, and, well, while, and, and incidentally, while we're on statistics, to finish once and for all... Yeah, wish- arguing, arguing that your party isn't racist because, like, black. well, 2% of it is black people. <laughs> right, black people. Argue, basically, uh-huh. <laughs> our party isn't racist, that's why black people don't join it. Is that what? <laughs> like, get the fuck out of here! Like, and then again, you notice that he he like countered what Buckley was saying, and Buckley couldn't shut the fuck up and let him talk. Yeah, there were a couple times where there was crosstalk between the two of them, but it'd be interesting to go back through this and see who kind of started the interruptions. And I, it seems to me that Buckley was the most likely one to pipe up when uh, Vidal said something he didn't like. Yeah, I I got that impression too. I think Buckley is the one that interrupts more often. And don't get me wrong, like it's you know I had talked to Aaron Aaron from Embrace the Void about this. Like the there's this other there's this other extreme that I don't like, and it's like the IDW crap where nobody ever interrupts anyone. <laughs> and I don't like that. I, I think that's bad conversation. I think it's incredibly bad conversation. But. You know, in this kind of format, you're supposed to, you're kind of supposed to not interrupt your opponent, and the moderator is supposed to kind of keep everybody's commentary brief, so that you have time to like respond to what the other person said. So in this format, eh, maybe interrupting is bad, or at least interrupting as often as Buckley does. Last night, when you contradicted me that whether Mr. Reagan campaigned for Helen Hagen Douglas, indeed he did, made several radio speeches. You said that uh, indeed he did not. He did, indeed he did. And also when he campaigned for Russo, the only issue in that campaign, who was a Republican, was that he'd been a member of the John Birch Society. And the other two, contrary to what you said, were not Democratic candidates that he campaigned for, but they were Republican. Just to get the record straight. It was, well, you have not 
Uh, excuse me, you have not illuminated the record, you have confounded it. I have, absolutely, now you because must not uh, react to facts. You so, so oh, I, always so rea I always react to facts. These are facts, however. The, Mr. Reagan's position on the John Birch Society is uh, crystalline, it's always yes, it's crystalline. He always deplored it. The, the, the sharpest critic of Mr. Reagan in Sacramento is the single member of the John Birch Society. Yes, I read Senator that. Schmidt. No, yes, you read it, but you wouldn't have brought it up. But, <laughs> but let's not go into that digression. He did, however, support let's simply ask a Birch this. Society candidate. Well, why he knew not? he was one. And well, this is a man sounds as though Mr. Nixon's going to be maybe the candidate, and Reagan is unlikely. I know, but I like Ronald Reagan. I like talking about Ronald Reagan. <laughs> After all, <laughs> we'll be nothing but Nixon. Look at, did you see him get fucking like the frustration on Buckley's face when every time Vidal kind of says something cool or funny or kind of like off the cuff, you and they cut to Buckley, he's like, oh, because he's <laughs> he knows he can't do that. When he tries, it doesn't work. It's like if somebody's talking to me. And they're like, like if I was going to, like if I debated some super Brett Weinstein fan and they said something and I cracked back at them, they'd be like, oh, and it wouldn't be like, oh, what an idiot. They might be like trying to put that off. But what they're saying to themselves is, fuck, man, I can't do that. <laughs> now, what I was trying to say is very simply this, that it is unfortunately a part of the polemical resources of both parties to try to insinuate that the other party is unfeeling concerning something. Uh, my point is that the Republican Party has only had uh, 7% of the Negro vote because the Democrats have succeeded in persuading uh, the overwhelming majority of the Negroes that the Democratic Party shows them an avenue to real progress. But we've had... No, 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 no. You don't... <laughs> They've just shown themselves not to be the Republicans. Like in shown themselves not to be as racist as the Republicans, because at this time the Democratic Party was still a bit racist. A bit, uh, yeah. This, this <laughs> still, a, still a might racist, <laughs> right? They all they had to do was show themselves to not be the Republican Party, and the, the black folks who are going to vote are going to vote for them overwhelmingly. Because at this point, yeah, like, like what happened was like literally after the civil rights act passed all the liberal republicans like liberals on race and by liberals on race i mean probably less racist left the republican party because the republican party was trying to court the racist former dixiecrats in the south as a, an electoral strategy and so everything got fucking mixed up and or everything got kind of shifted up and the uh, kind of more polarized on race and so yeah yeah like black folks are going to be like well we're going to go and vote for these people i guess <laughs> like, yeah the lesser of two evils at that point <laughs> the yeah you, it's people like oh you still get evil i'm like but you get less our <laughs> <laughs> democratic administrations not only in the states but federally and the failure of them in fact uh, to chart a course of true progress may in fact for the first time have the effect of reawakening an interest in the majority of the negro community to alternative ways of progress now, those are extra political ways the kind that mr reagan uh, is engaging in in california um very good bill very good i just sort of <laughs> I was like I was like that that was like the 1968 version of I got nothing. 
<laughs> very good, very good. Like, what? Are you, how do you respond to that asinine shit the guy just said? <laughs> Extra- I like the. Uh, I like. Uh, what's her name? Ross and Carrie. I like their their response to it. I'm sure that's all true, right? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we might be big enough that we can get one of them on now. Yeah, yeah, the guy was just like, oh, the guy running for president should be doing extra political things, that means outside of politics, to help black people. And it's like, well, no, they're running for president. That's a political job. You dumb fuck. Like, the garbage company should be doing extra custodial things, extra extra sanitation things to actually help you with your trash. They shouldn't be doing, like, <laughs> the picking up of your garbage thing, actually. They should just be doing, like some kind of community outreach regarding garbage. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I have a sense out there that there's a convention going on. And, Does that uh, mean you don't know what to say? No, I know what to say. I just finished saying it. That Richard Nixon has come out against open housing and he's explained well, to the Southern Caucus that uh, he said one thing to the public lots and another people, thing lots, to... Uh, lots of people come out against uh, open housing. The Democratic mayor of Milwaukee. Now, don't bring a report against open housing. Right, but that's bad, too. Yeah, this is classic whataboutism. Yes, and and my aunt Finita's against it, too, but we're talking about Richard Nixon, who is running for president. You only bring it up because... Because we're running for president, we're talking about Richard Nixon. Because you assume that one can draw certain inferences from it. I'll say you can. to suggest that Mr. Nixon uh, is delinquent in a morally sensitive area. I would say that Mr. Nixon was, has proven himself to be all things to all men, if I may quote, quote St. Paul to you, and uh, he continues to do so. And I am disturbed. Why, does he, serious, I'm why did he lose election? If he proved that, why did he lose an election? If he proved that he was all things to all men. Come on, why, why, why? <laughs> because it because, does. Because he, it doesn't. he won the election in the party that is against open housing. By on one hand saying that he was for open housing, wink, wink, and then going to like little groups of people and saying, actually, I'm against it. No, wink, wink, wink. And that's how did he win the how did he win the election of the, the fucking face ripper monkey party by like advocating for face ripper monkeys? <laughs> how did he win the what, what the fuck kind of question is that? Oh, yeah, well, if that guy's so racist, how, is he, how did he win the election for the head of the KKK? Like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Always work, and you can't fool all the people all the time, except, well, perhaps, didn't except perhaps on television. Then he wasn't all things to I think you're sweating. Here, take this. <laughs> <laughs> we have a report that Nixon has denied that he made that statement about open housing. Uh, I give it to you for what it's worth. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't make it. I'm sure he didn't make it. I, and I'm sure uh, he didn't make it, so. No, I'm sure he didn't make it all, but I think one has to remember uh, that... Wasn't there a tape? ...to simply... <laughs> uh, to simply is Buckley denying the tape? which is pleasing to any minority group, whether it's Catholics uh, about prayer in the schools or Jews about Israel or Negroes about whatever. Uh, oh, he didn't say, uh-oh. What did he mean to say? Because he just kind of mumbled some shit about Jews. I wonder what he was trying to mumble. Mm. To promulgate is the Vidal Civil Rights Bill of 1968 and then proceed uh, to accuse everybody who voted against it uh, as being anti-Semitic, anti-Negro, anti-Catholic. It's, it's, I must it's say, an old labor device, unfortunately not 
totally successful. I must say this is one of the strangest countries on earth that nobody's record ever matters at all. I must say I think the public's memory is about four weeks at best, and I say this sadly on all issues. I've, I, I've tried in the course I'm of afraid I'll have to interrupt you, but I ask you to meditate on the best choice for a vice president tomorrow because that's what we're going to be talking about. I thank you now, and we'll be back with more on Miami Day 3, the nomination. I couldn't find part five. any. I couldn't find debate five anywhere I looked. Darn. Also, we're like well over time, but <clears throat> what I said <laughs> earlier is it strikes me that it only came up like race and like like civil rights only came up very, very little. And we watched yeah. the Democratic uh, one last week and this one this week. And I don't I don't know if it was the moderators. I don't know if they were told maybe before this not to get into it about race by like the people who were hosting the debate. I don't know. Who fucking knows? I feel like they would have had to have been because it was such a big issue in the public then. Right. It was somebody's decision. Yeah. Well, that was crazy because, like, at the end, he's like, oh, you know, every time oh, you get just calling us a racist all the time. Well, that didn't change either, did it? <laughs> That's the same yep. shit today. Yep. All right, we're over time, so I'm going to read us out this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Intellectual Dollar Tree on the pod. Make sure you're following the podcast. Uh, we will not be watching something from 1968 next week unless I find something real good from 1968. Uh, you can follow us on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. If you want to watch our shows live, we're live every night now, but Monday, um, Meltdown Monday, will be making a glorious comeback in soon, just not just not super soon. And um, <clears throat> yeah, make sure you check out all of our stuff at echoplexmedia.com and don't forget to check out our swag shop. That's eplex.store. We have a bunch of great stuff. Um, and uh, make sure you check out the... Uh, pink hk shirt while it's still there it's, it'll still be there for 16 more days this is boomers by periscope i'm gonna change the color of the lights change the contents of my beverage and we'll come back and watch something modern and infuriating
Media streams seven days a week on twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. With a variety of hosts and topics, there's bound to be something you'll like or hate so much you can't stop watching it. All times are Pacific. Check out our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com.